We're going to be looking at Psalm 27 this morning. Um, so if you turn in your program to page number 12, you'll find it printed there. Or you can turn in your Bible uh, to Psalm 27. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, and then I'll, I'll pray for us as we ask for God's help, and then we'll uh, begin discussing Psalm 27. So let's listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Psalm 27, beginning in verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord." Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. As we prepare to discuss um, this psalm, let's go before the Lord and ask for His help. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that You would indeed um, pour out Your Spirit uh, in order that we might understand Your Word, in order that it might be applied to our lives. Uh, Father, however we come this morning, whether we've walked through these doors surprised to even find ourselves in a church this morning or anxious to be with Your people, uh, whether we feel that You're far from us or whether we feel that we've never walked so closely with You as we do right now or whether we come with doubts and bitterness, um, uh, carrying suffering and burdens in this world. However we come this morning, Lord, we pray that you would meet with us all, that you would meet with us and reveal to us that though the symptoms of brokenness in our lives may appear different, uh, we're really all the same because all of us together, we are far more broken than we could ever imagine. And together, we need the hope of the gospel. Um, We need to be reminded that it can be true this morning, um, that at the very same time, we're far more broken than we could ever imagine, 
that because of Jesus, His person, and His work, we are also far more loved and far more accepted, far more secure, far more approved of than we could have ever dared to dream possible. And so we pray that you would lift our eyes this morning, and with the eyes of faith we might see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to begin a little bit differently uh, this morning in that I I want you to try at the beginning here to kind of tap into a particular feeling um, and identify with a particular feeling. Uh, You might have to use your memory uh, from your childhood in order to do this, or maybe if you're a parent, you can think about your children and how they've experienced this, but before I get to it, I, I got a real close-up view with this feeling that I'm talking about when I was in college because I went uh, for one summer and I worked at um, Alpine Camp for Boys in Mentone, Alabama. And when I was there at, at, uh, at that camp, the campers, these kids, they would come in and they would stay for camp four weeks, which is an awful long time for a kid to be away from home. And so many of these kids experience this feeling that I want you to try to identify with, and it's homesickness. I mean, do you know what that feels like? Um, can you remember what that felt like, or can you uh, imagine what it feels like? Um, it, to, to have this, to be homesick is to be miserable, right? I mean, when I was working at this camp, all these kids at camp, and they had tons of activities to enjoy. They were surrounded by friends. Their parents spent a small fortune to get them to this camp, right? Camp counselors were getting paid just to make sure these kids had a good time and had fun. It was paradise on earth for these little kids. But if you were homesick, you couldn't enjoy any of it. Right? Why, why is that? It's, it's because these children, their mind, their heart, their affections were obsessed with one thing and one thing only, and that was home, right? Nothing else could satisfy. Every little thing reminds them that this isn't home. And the more you think about it, the more miserable you become. So I'm asking if you can identify with that feeling because here's the thing. I want you to carry that feeling forward into our discussion of Psalm 27. It's obscured a little bit in the English, but in verse 4 of the Hebrew, the words for one thing, they're emphasized in the Hebrew. See, what he's really saying, what David is really saying, he's saying there is one thing and one thing only that I am seeking after. One thing and one thing only will satisfy me. See, as best as I can, I want us to have a conversation this morning about this one thing. And this is why. The one thing David sought is the one thing you and I are looking for in this life, whether we know it or not. And until we get it, we can't and we won't be free in this life. Until we get it, Everything else in life is going to come up short of satisfying us. And so I want us to structure our little conversation about this psalm under three points. Here's what I want us to talk about. First, I want us to talk about the one thing we all need. And then second, I want us to talk about why we need this one thing. 
And then third, I want us to talk about how we can get this one thing. Okay? So three points. The one thing we need, why we need it, and how we can get it. So first, the one thing we need. The one thing we need is to come before the beautiful face of God. To bask in the beams of his glory, the sunshine of his face, as we sang earlier. Right, to bask in his goodness, his beauty, and his love. David wrote in verse 4 that the one thing he's seeking is to dwell in the house of the Lord. The house of the Lord, he's talking about the temple, and we're going to come back to talking about the temple in a few minutes. But what is it he wants from dwelling in the temple? Look at verse 4. He wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. He wants to stare intently to gaze. He he wants to be captivated and mesmerized by a vision of God's ultimate beauty. He wants to see the beauty, which is the fountainhead of all other beauty in life. He's craving the ultimate beatific vision. Now, I, I I get that all that sounds a little philosophical, especially when you start saying beatific vision. Um, It may seem a little abstract, um, but listen, verse 8 puts things in much more concrete terms for us. Verse 8, you have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Verse 9, hide not your face from me. He's saying ultimate beauty is found in seeing God's face. And here's why that's more concrete and less abstract. Because you know this and I know this. To be face-to-face with someone is to be in a real, experiential, and intimate relationship with someone. He's not saying, I want to know more about God. I mean, surely knowing more about God's involved, but this is so much more. He's saying, I want to know him personally. I want to know him intimately, and I want to be known by him. I want to experience his presence in my life, is what David is saying. He's saying, I want a relationship with the one who is ultimate beauty in himself. And to crave that is to be human. And to get it is to come home. You were built for the face of God, and nothing else will ever truly satisfy you in this life. Last year, I heard a little story about a boy who was about six or seven years old, and his mom suddenly passed away. And um, now it was just him and his dad. And this boy's dad said that for weeks on end, he would put his son to bed and say goodnight to him. But every night, for weeks without fail, this dad would wake up in the middle of the night when his son had crawled into bed with him. And here's why this dad said he woke up every night, because when his son crawled into his bed, every night he would reach his little hands out and grab his dad's face and turn his, his dad's face to him while they slept. And he would say to his dad, I need your face. Right? What, what was he saying? He was saying, I need to see you and I need to be seen by you. I need to know you and be known by you. I need your face. He was saying, I need to know you love me. I need to know that you won't leave me, that you won't forsake me. And there's, you and I, there's nothing abstract about that. That's deeply human. That's relational. David's saying in the psalm, the one thing I need 
is God's face. That is what I was built for. And nothing else will ever satisfy me. I'm homesick, he's saying, without his face. In, in about the fourth or fifth grade, my dad took me to get an autograph from my boyhood hero, which was Mickey Mantle. Um, actually, it was more my dad's hero. Um, but because of that, he was just kind of this legendary figure. And I was going to go see him and get his autograph on my baseball glove. And for some reason, we got to this place late, but in just enough time to see Mickey Mantle leaving with his bodyguards. And so as we walked up, my dad ran up to one of the bodyguards and tapped him on the shoulder and asked if Mickey Mantle could just give one more autograph to his son. And we received back a very firm no, um, and that Mickey had a plane to catch, and it was too late. And something happened at that moment, um, being the mature 10 or 11-year-old that I was, um, and utterly heartbroken, and I know this will surprise some of you incredibly, um, I started to cry. Um, And here's what happened. Mickey heard it. He, He heard me crying. And he turned around and he told his bodyguards to wait on him. And he came right up to me. And he got down on his knees. And he got face to face with me. And he asked me all about my baseball team and what position I played and all that kind of stuff. Um, We had this face to face conversation. And he signed my glove, and honestly, I don't, I don't ever know what happened to that. It might be in my parents' attic. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me because I had this, for a moment, I was face-to-face with Mickey Mantle. For a moment, I knew him, and he knew me. And all because he came towards me. And that's only a shadow, a dim hint of what we're made for. We were made for the ultimate. We were made to come face-to-face with ultimate beauty, God himself. That's the one thing we need. We need God's face. Okay, second, let's talk about why God's face is the one thing we need. Um, It's what we need, now why we need it. One of my all-time favorite parts of C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, some of you know this, it's at, at the end of the last book, and the characters, they're coming into paradise the new heavens and the new earth, and the awareness of it starts to dawn on these characters in his story. And this is what Lewis has one of his characters say in that moment. This character says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. I'm going to ask you a question. How self-aware are we really? I mean, are you aware of the searching and the seeking beneath all the searching and the seeking in your life? Do you know the land you've been looking for all your life? Right? I think you'll see this pretty clearly as we get into the psalm a little bit. Because once you realize that God's beautiful face is the one thing that David needed, then the rest of the psalm makes sense. Just take a glance at what, what's going on in David's life, and I'm going to run through it quickly for you. People are attacking him. 
Enemies are threatening him. Armies are encroaching against him. Wars are breaking out in verses 2 and 3. Trouble, he says, is all around him. He's being slandered. He's being attacked. He's being stabbed in the back. That's all verses 5 and 6. Verse 12, he's being utterly abandoned by those who are closest to him. Verse 10, my father and mother have forsaken me. I mean, here's all the things that are going on in his life. Physical danger, emotional trouble, anxiety-producing events, relational trauma in his life. There seems to be a lot of circumstances in David's life that need fixing. But David wasn't asking God to fix any of those things. He wasn't praying, God, get me out of this trouble, fix this or that, and then I'll be happy. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, God, give me your face. And if you give me your face, and if you come near to me and show me your beauty and let me bask in the sunshine of your face, if I get your face, then I can face anything this broken world has to offer. Verse 6, my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. If I can have God's face, I can hold my head high no matter what happens to me in my life. Why do we need God's face? Because if we get it, we're free. We're, We're completely free. If you get the one thing you were made for, life can hurt you and it can threaten you at times, but you can hold your head up and not be crushed by it. If you get his face, you become free of the fear and the anxiety and the bitterness and the resentment and the emptiness that's so often driving you in life. Listen, when my daughter Kennedy was three years old, uh, we were living in Starkville, Mississippi. I was there uh, as a campus minister at Mississippi State, and we had this friend uh, in town who had this house on a lake. And um, so we, we went over there one afternoon, and we were fishing off of their little pier. We were fishing for brim and loading up their hooks with hot dogs and all those kind of things that you do. And while we're baiting hooks, we took our eyes off of Kennedy for just a moment. And she took one step backwards and fell off of that pier and went into the water and, um, and fell into the lake, and I heard the splash, and I turned around just in time to see her going up and to see her little eyes looking up at me as she went under the water. And um, I, I was in better shape and quicker and faster at that time in my life, um, and so I sprang into action very quickly. Um, what did I, I jumped right into the water with her. And pulled her out. She was only under for maybe two seconds, something like that. Um, but it, it obviously scared her. Um, and I, traumatic moment for this little girl, right? I put her back on the dock. Um, she couldn't swim at this age. And here, here's what happened, though. One week later, we're go, we got invited back to this friend's house. <laughs> and so I, we felt it was only fair to warn my daughter that we were returning to the scene of the crime, right? And so as my wife is buckling her into her little car seat in the back of the car. Um, My wife told her what we were doing, and Kennedy looked up at her, and she said, Mama, we should maybe bring some more clothes in case I fall in the lake again. Um, Now, here's, here's why I remember that moment, because to me, it was just beautiful, because there was no fear in her voice. There was no concern. There was no evidence in her life of post-traumatic stress at this moment. 
She wasn't scarred by the experience a week earlier. All she wanted to be sure of was that we had some extra clothes just in case she fell in again. Because she knew if she fell in, I would be in there with her, right? She had real confidence that if anything happened, her daddy would be right there with her. He would come into that water to get her. So it would be nice to have some dry clothes, that's all. What if you got the one thing you need, God's face? Do you see how that could settle your fearful and anxious heart? Verse 3, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Why do we need God's face? Let me ask it like this. Why are we so often afraid and anxious and bitter and resentful in life? Because we're working so hard and we're trying so hard to survive life, a life that's threatening and dangerous and broken. And so many of us, we get married in the hopes that someone will give us the love and acceptance we need to survive this life. Or we diet and we exercise like crazy to get thinner, to get prettier. Because then if we could look in the mirror, maybe we could be confident with what we see. Or or, or we build beautiful homes that we hope are going to replenish and refresh us and keep us safe. Or we strive for success and achievement in our careers and in padding our bank accounts because we're trying to create safe places in a harsh, broken world. You know, we we seek transcendent but momentary beauty in art, in music, to lift us above a life that feels often empty and meaningless. Why do we need God's face? Because his beautiful face is what we've been looking for all this time, even though we may have never known it till now. In every loving face, you've been chasing the face of God. In every accepting embrace, you've been chasing the embrace of God. In every bit of beauty, you've been chasing his beauty. In every diet, in every achievement, in in, in every bit of working so hard, we're trying to get home. We're trying to come face to face with God, with ultimate beauty. St. Augustine famously wrote in his prayer, Almighty God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. We need his face because we'll be restless until we come before his face. That's the thing we've been chasing beneath all our chasing. Okay, finally, let's talk about how to get the face of God. How can we get this one thing we need? Because that is actually the driving question of the Old Testament and certainly the whole Bible. Who can stand before the face of God? What did Adam and Eve do after they sinned against God in the Garden of Eden? They ran and hid. Because God's face was no longer to them a source of comfort but terror because they had broken the relationship. Right In Exodus chapter 33, it was actually quoted on the front of your bulletin uh, this morning, Moses begged to see God's face. And God said, basically, I'll let you see my back, but my face would destroy you if you saw it. Isaiah came before God's face in Isaiah 6, and it terrified him. This is a paraphrase of what happened with Isaiah. He said, woe is me. I'm as good as dead. Why? Because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, he says. On the best day of fishing Peter ever had in his life, 
it dawned on him in the boat that God himself was in the boat, that he was face to face with God. So you know what Peter said? He said, depart from me. Get away from me, Jesus, for I'm a sinful man. I can't come before your face like this. What you desperately need is God's face. Without his face, you'll spend your life chasing but never finding. Without his face, you'll be crushed by the hardness of life. But to come before God's face, to come before ultimate beauty, his holiness, his purity as a sinful man or woman, that's not pleasant. That's terrifying. So how do we get before the face of God? David said in verse 4, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord. I want to dwell in the temple all the days of my life. You know what David's doing? He's asking for something that's not allowed him. I mean, David was an important figure, but he was king. He wasn't a priest. And only the priests could go into the temple. But you know, even the priests weren't allowed to approach the presence the face of God regularly. In the temple, there, there, there were a couple of courts, and the innermost court, you may know, was called the Holy of Holies, and it was sealed off by a big, thick curtain. And that's where the ark was kept, because that's where God's presence was, because that's where God's face was. And only the priest, the high priest, could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And when he went in, he couldn't go in empty-handed. He had to bring with him a basin of blood. Why was blood necessary? Because it was the blood of sacrifice. I mean, last Sunday, we looked at Leviticus chapter 1, and we talked all about blood sacrifices. You read portions of the Old Testament sacrificial system, and you realize that the temple, the temple was a place of a lot of death. And a lot of blood everywhere, all the time. What were the people constantly learning? The one and only way you can come before God's face is with blood. A holy, pure God has to punish sin. And that's what the priest was doing with the basin of blood. He was saying, the only way I can come before the face of God is because this animal died in my place. The gospel writers, um, they all tell us that something very significant happened when Jesus died. They tell us that when Jesus breathed his last breath, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. It was the curtain that sealed off the innermost court of the temple, the Holy of Holies. And you know what that means? It means this. Now anyone can come into the Holy of Holies. Now anyone can come before the face of God. We can approach the face we were made for. We can come all the way in and without fear because we come through blood, through the blood of Jesus, the lamb slain for us. As the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is our great high priest, the ultimate priest. And because of his sacrifice, he can bring us all the way in before God's face. Do you know why all of your favorite stories that you read, um, all the best stories involve sacrificial love? Um, 
my my kids are at an age they miss the Harry Potter thing, and so now they're kind of discovering the Harry Potter world, right? And there's this great place in one of the books where Dumbledore is explaining to Harry why he got that lightning scar on his forehead and how it was, Dumbledore was explaining how it was that when this evil wizard Voldemort came to kill Harry, he couldn't kill him, um, but only left a scar. And here's what he said to Harry. I knew that Voldemort's knowledge of magic is perhaps more extensive than any wizard alive. I knew that even my most complex and powerful protective spells and charms were unlikely to be invincible if he ever returned to full power. But then listen to this. But I knew, too, where Voldemort was weak, and so I made my decision. You would be protected by an ancient magic of which he knows, which he despises, and which he always, therefore, underestimated to his cost. I am speaking, of course, of the fact that your mother died to save you. She gave you a lingering protection he never expected, a protection that flows in your veins to this day. And then this is what Dumbledore said. I put my trust, therefore, in your mother's blood. And it's beautiful, right? Sacrificial death, trusting in blood. That sounds like very Christian. I don't think those are Christian books um, as far as I understand it. But it sounds very gospel-like, right? Of course it does. Because every bit of beauty, in every bit of beauty, we're chasing the beauty of God. In every story of real and true love, we're chasing the story of ultimate love. In every story of the transforming power of love, we're chasing the power of God's transforming love. How can we get the face of God? We come to Jesus because he's the one who came to us. He's the one who got down on our level. He's the one who came to meet us face to face. He's the one who died the death we should have died and lived the life we couldn't live. And all of this to bring us before his Father's face so that we could bask in the sunshine of his face and not just know about his love, but know his love intimately, relationally, and personally so that we can know his favor and his goodness and grace. Real quick, very quick in fact, I'm going to give you four bits of application uh, for this to work out. First thing is this. You and I really need to pay attention to our feelings of homesickness in our life. Because whenever you feel that creeping into your life, I've got to make more. I've got to achieve more. And then I'll get home. You need to pause and realize that God is summoning you home before his face You will never find home in those things, but only in his face. The second thing is you need to discipline yourself to look upon God's beauty. Seek his beauty. How do you do that? You open your Bible and you study it to see God's beauty. You pray like David. I mean, David was begging to see God's face, begging for it. And that needs to become your regular habit in life, to pray for that. Third, You put yourself in community. I mean, the temple is where all of God's people gathered and worshiped. You cannot find the grace of God. You cannot find the face of God in isolation. You can only do it with others. God reveals his face to you through his people. And then finally and fourthly, you have to learn to wait. 
Psalm 27, verse 14, the last verse. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Who is David talking to? He's talking to himself, right? He's talking to himself. And as you pay attention to your feelings of homesickness, as you put yourself in community and you discipline yourself to come before God in his word and your prayer, you have to also wait. You have to wait for God to reveal himself. But you've got to know this. He's a God who loves to reveal himself. He's a God who loves to make himself known, who loves to show his face to broken people who need his mercy and his grace. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you um, this morning for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that we find ourselves pointed to Jesus on every page of Scripture that we open up, even in Psalm 27. And Father, we pray that you would now take your word and that you would write it upon our hearts that you would convict us of sin and you would convict us of the only righteousness that will do, the righteousness of Jesus in our place. Father, we pray that we would indeed realize and become aware of the searching beneath all our searching, to know that we were made for God's face. And with it, we can endure. With it, we can persevere. With it, we can pursue you. Father, we ask that you would allow these things to happen in our life as you take us to Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.